This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of Did You Read, the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by columnists Daniel Finkelstein, Jenny Russell and Roger Boys. These are our topics for this week. It's time to scrap the budget. We now have two major fiscal events a year, the budget and the autumn statement. This encourages gimmicks, it reduces strategic thinking and it makes it harder to plan. We should move from one event to two and then to budgets only every two years. There's a violent subculture inside our police forces that's out of control. Three recent cases caught on CCTV have shown the police behaving brutally, lying and assuming they'll get away with it. We need cameras, codes of conduct and tough punishments for officers who offend. The West is threatening Russia with sanctions. They're pretty wimpish and are unlikely to make Putin get out of Crimea anytime soon. What we have to do is offer Ukraine NATO membership to show Russia its limits. Will that get us into a shooting war? No, but it's the only sure way of setting Russia's limits in Europe. Well, those are our um, three topics for today. And we're going to start, uh, Danny Finkelstein, with your topic on the budget. Now, we are recording this podcast before George Osborne has actually got to his feet and announced his measures, although we know a couple like on Ebbsfleet and um, childcare. But your basic view is that having these annual budgets as well as the autumn statement means we're getting too much potential tinkering, too much media excitement. And what we really need is just a couple of big events in a parliament which sets the fiscal direction. Is that right? That's right. I started to question this more than 10 years ago when I worked for William Hague and my job was to help him prepare his budget response. And the budget response has to be prepared without any knowledge of what's in the budget. So you're preparing a response to something you don't know what actually it is. And I used to think what an absurd ritual it was. And then to notice all the ways in which the budget has become merely that, a ritual that everyone has to do every year. And the Chancellor has massive expectations placed upon him or her to provide some sort of dramatic economy-moving policy, uh, when really that isn't possible. Uh, What moves the economy over a long time is the framework in which people operate. And so it encourages a sort of tinkering idea and the idea that you can make people better off with a budget when all you can actually do is move money from one person to another. And your view is there should be just one or two budgets in a parliament. Isn't, yes. isn't the danger with that that actually you get 
at least if you have a discipline of a budget a year, that is the time the politicians make tax and spending announcements. If they only have two opportunities, formal opportunities in a parliament, won't they just find other ways of announcing measures other times? Doesn't the budget actually well, no, limit the, the number of announcements? The you budget's get? tied to certain formal things which relate to the way that which tax are raised. And one of the things that we have is a rule that tax has to be renewed, not VAT, which is permanent, but the other taxes has to be have to be renewed once a year. Uh, well, we could just say they should be renewed once every two years. You wouldn't be able to do them all the time. Uh, the, the, the point about it is that there's an assumption that moving the tax up and down all the time is going to change something economic when actually, really, it's just fiddling. Okay. Jenny Russell, are you uh, with Danny in wanting to scrap these uh, well, annual statements? Sim- I'm rather in sympathy with Danny because I think so often budgets are gimmicks. Apparently, in the last one, George Osborne was absolutely thrilled to discover them that by taking one pence off the price of beer, he got all sorts of good headlines in the tabloids. I don't know why it's taken him so many years to notice. Gordon Brown is very good at playing that kind of game. But when I sit and look at what happens to budgets and think about all the huge issues that seem to be facing us in Britain, how do we pay for elderly care? What on earth are we going to do about the fact that at least a quarter of the population isn't going to have a pension that's anything like sufficient to keep up their current standard of living? What are we going to do about loneliness? What do we do about the fact that the north of England has almost no investment compared with the south? It's how irrelevant so much of the budget manipulation seems to be to these enormous issues. And as Danny says, twice a year we get transfixed by the minor details like should the higher rate tax kick kick in at 41,275 or 41,978? And so I have some sympathy with it. But There's one big question I want to ask. George Osborne, when he started out, um, thought that he was going to be able to cut the deficit very rapidly. And in fact, borrowing is far higher than he expected. Growth didn't hit anything like um, the rates that he expected. It dawdled along at practically zero for the first couple of years. Doesn't Danny think that in those situations you have to be able to make adjustments well, it's dangerous to do them on the basis of one year's forecast. I mean, we've actually... Well, they've got three they've years gone, they've, gone, no they've gone up and they've gone back down again. So what we do is we follow randomness. I mean, you wouldn't want to follow any figure over one period. I'm always saying when I write my football column how ridiculous it is for managers to try to manage teams on a game-by-game basis. What you want to do is try to manage them over a season or maybe even over a five-year period. So I, I think that following of the forecast is quite a good example. And the forecast went up, it went down, and now they've gone back up again. Yes, but the reality was that growth didn't happen. And since growth didn't kick in for three years, don't you think that George Osborne needed to adjust his spending, which in fact he did? Well, you, you, could, you could have an emergency budget if you accept Jenny's analysis. You could have the set two occasions or whatever you're proposing, Danny, and then just have an emergency budget if events well, demanded it. If you thought it was helpful, but mm. I would wonder why it would be. Well, um, he, did, he did, in fact, change his spending plans. Because he started, he, could. he started spending a lot more because he realised that actually um, contraction, whatever anyway, it was, we're, contractionary we're, austerity wasn't you could, quite working. You could, yes, the answer is, of course, you could do that. You wouldn't lose any ability to do that. But I, you know, I would, one of the things I'm trying to do is question whether that really is all that helpful. Roger Boyd. Yes. Uh, well, I see it more of as more as a cultural historian, really, rather than uh, and as a punter. You, you elevate this. Yeah, I'd like to elevate you. it out of these, you know, growth discussions. But uh, no, Who cares I cares about growth. But as, you know, but I've you know I've spent years uh, in Germany, you know, where budget pre-budget discussion is deadly, of course, you know. And I rather like do they the have spectacle. An, do they have annual statements. Well, in they Germany? have. Yeah, they have. Yeah, they have budget discussions which then become 
you know, formalized and into some, but they're never an event. And I love this business of, you know, the theater of it all, uh, the, the, you know, the leaks from the defense, you know, the self-seeking leaks from the defense ministry, the counter briefings, you know, it's a bit like the Oxford and Cambridge boat race, really. And I think the more the better, really. I'd have three budgets a year. It's just simply because you engage, you engage the public in, in, in you know, in policy. Uh, you, think, you think people are engaged with this process? Well, I think so. And what Danny calls gimmicks, well, they're things that affect people, you know. I mean, of course, you know, we could live without garden cities probably, but... No, stamp people are really talking. My taxi driver talks about stamp duty, you know, uh, with with great authority, really. And uh, you know, I and I remember. I'm also old enough to remember when budgets really made an argument, uh, like the Lawson, the 1988 Lawson. Mm. And that was, the, I think, that was the budget that cut the, cut the top rate of income tax from 60 to 40p. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, um, and they were. It seems to me that maybe Danny's criticism is rather that um, they're too much about electoral advantage and not enough about making an argument. Is that right, An argument for capitalism, an (coughs) argument for choice, an argument for this. We're not doing that in a forward way. There have been very big strategic budgets. You named one of them. And the budget that was was the beginning of this parliament was clearly a major strategic occasion. Very important. But I'm just arguing, you know, who remembers Gordon Brown's 2006 budget? Um, Yes, you know, he did one in 1997 and I think again in two. 2002 that were really important but most of the time they're not that important and uh, they're they're not a form of entertainment in the end and actually insofar as they're a form of entertainment they make bad policy that's really my point Uh, insofar as they attempt to uh, provide something that's more interesting than Germany and make sure and your your tax taxi (laughs) driver (laughs) and your your taxi driver enjoys those take you away from sensible economic policy making but uh, Jenny your answer to make it more interesting is to make it more like the Soviet Union have five year plans is it not? <laughs> Jenny, Jenny Russell, you talked earlier about, I don't want to get us too drifting off into other subjects, but you talked earlier about the big challenges being things like loneliness and the North South gap. If we're going to scrap the budget in uh, Danny's plan, would you put a sort of State of the Union um, type American occasion in its place? So actually, the Prime Minister does a big sort of annual statement of the general priorities of policy. Would, do you think that would be a good addition to? the British political system, whereby well, think, those think, wider challenges... I think, Tim, you've just come up with a really good idea because, in fact, that might inspire people somewhat. And if the Prime Minister were obliged to go around the country reporting on the state of each area, then you'd have to recognise the fact that Wales is in a dire state and so is the north and much of the Midlands and it's only the southeast that's booming. And perhaps an annual report in that, in, in that sense would in fact, engage people more. I think it's a wonderful idea. You're very close to lots of top Tories. Can't you suggest it? I was that, talking that about Tim is a it. terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm really <laughs> sorry. You want to engage uh, people no, in politics? No, I, I, I don't. One of my proudest, achi- <laughs> one of my proudest <laughs> achievements in working in, in politics, uh, admittedly not, uh, not an experience replete with very proud achievements, but one of my proudest achievements was managing to, def- to so ridicule Tony Blair's um, uh, annual report through through William Hague's speeches that he stopped doing them altogether, which was a good idea. <laughs> now, I'm... Th- that was to, the to, one to where clear, they announced all sorts of things like integrated transport policy was yes, done and uh, the one The one where he announced that there was a... stadium in Sheffield. That was right. Yeah. Why do you think this is such a lousy no, well, because, idea? Well, because I'm 
What I'm against is lots of big occasions in which politicians are expected, uh, because of the theatre of the occasion, to produce individual policies that solve Britain's long-standing problems. Because I don't think they do solve Britain's long-standing problems. What they end up is doing is spending money, encouraging interest groups to involve, increasing uncertainty of planning, making it difficult to plan spending, difficult to plan tax. Um, and without adding, I don't think people do pay much attention to it because they don't believe it most of the time. Before we move on to uh, Jenny's uh, subject. Just one last question for you, Danny. In in Tuesday's paper, we had a piece by Ed Conway, um, doubting really whether George Osborne was a conservative. And I don't want you necessarily to respond to everything that Ed said. But one thing that he said in that piece was, whereas George, uh, uh, whereas Gordon Brown used to announce the sweet things and hide the difficult things in the red book, the Treasury red book, George Osborne does the opposite. He acts tough and in his rhetoric in the budget, but actually in the in the red book, he hides the fact that spending is continuing on a gargantuan scale. How, how would you respond to that critique? Uh, I thought I wasn't convinced in the end, although it was written with great verve and you know and, and uh, certain authority. Uh, we've made massive cuts. The reason that we haven't made as much cuts as we uh, wanted to was because we, the, the economy didn't grow as fast, and we can all have an argument about why that was. Um, but we was wrong. well, you know, or whether whether it was wrong or whether that was to do with the euro. We can have a, that's a separate uh, argument. But the but the fact that the cent, the central point of his piece, which did convince me was that we're not moving very fast on deficit reduction. We are moving very fast on deficit reduction okay. and on cutting spending. Well, Danny's piece on the budget, Ed Conway's piece on George Osborne can be read by Times subscribers at thetimes.co.uk slash comment central. And also in on that blog, you can comment on what you've heard in today's podcast. Um, and there you can read Jenny Russell's recent article on the police. Now, Jenny, you wrote in last Thursday's Times about what was captured on a series of CCTV videos about police brutality. Yes, there was a particularly shocking case, which was um, in front of the courts two weeks ago, in which a policeman um, assaulted a shoplifter who was in the Uniqlo of back offices. Um, she was a small, slight, young black woman sitting relaxed in a chair. You can't hear any sound. And the police officer stands in front of her. And she clearly isn't anticipating any kind of attack because she's leaning back. She isn't even leaning forward to argue with him. And then he suddenly grabs her by the hair, hauls her off her chair, throws her onto the ground, kneels on top of her, um, kneels on her back, thumps her several times with his fist in the head, rolls her over as if she's a bull needing to be restrained or a 15 stone wrestler very drunk late at night in a nightclub yanks her hands up behind her back puts the handcuffs on and then when the court case comes up um, he initially has claimed in his evidence that he was only responding to an assault by her it's perfectly obvious when you look at the cctv no such thing ever took place and he was in the end just given a community service order because the magistrate said that um, the woman whom he had attacked was no shrinking violet but this is the only the third in some recent cases where officers have claimed that they have been assaulted by members of the public and then quite by chance CCTV evidence comes to light which shows that they have just gone into the most brutal unprovoked assaults because they can mm. and of course we've had 30 40 years of people saying that the police have behaved brutally towards them and the police telling us very solemnly in court that oh no they didn't it was the members of the public who were the aggressors and on the whole the police get believed and now that more and more 
evidence is emerging because people have camera phones and they're filming scenes or there is CCTV, we're beginning to understand that there's a whole section of the police force that the minute you cross a line and you're some kind of suspect knows that they have absolute carte blanche to do what they like to you and that they're not going to be found guilty. And um, Time subscribers, I say, can read your piece and you, you documented those examples. Is your belief that this kind of behaviour is endemic in the police or a small minority or what's your sense of how big a problem this is? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by Luton Rising owners of London Luton Airport the UK's most socially impactful airport find out more at lutonrising.org.uk I'd be hard put to to say how big a problem it is, but one of the things that you notice is that in um, two of the videos, which aren't the case that I mentioned, you can see other policemen standing around and laughing or completely um, unconcerned as as a policeman beats up an innocent member of the public. And nobody in those circumstances complained. Nobody restrained that police officer. Nobody made a statement saying how he had behaved. So there's clearly an acceptance of it at a level that we can't quite gauge. And it means that um, all those people who have told us beforehand that this is what's happened to them have to be believed. And I think we have to move to a completely different model of policing. As far as I can make out talking to police officers when I was researching the article, they are not taught anything explicitly about the circumstances in which they may use violence. And of course, we want police officers to to have a capacity for violence. If they are faced with rioters or dangerous armed men or drunks, I want them to be intimidating. I want them to threaten. I want them to be able to throw somebody on the ground and yank their hands up behind their back and to scare people. But in a civilised society, attacking unarmed, unthreatening people just because those, those people are in the police's power is completely unacceptable. So I think we've got to have codes of conduct and we've got to have cameras and we've got to have much more scepticism about whether the what the police tell us about something is true. Roger Boyes, uh, David Davis, the former Tory Shadow Home Secretary and actually quite a civil libertarian on lots of issues, he recently made the argument in the Times that actually police should start having some sort of camera 
on their uniform so that they are they film their interactions with the public to try and deal with the problem that Jenny has identified. Would you welcome that, or do you think that is going down the line of, uh, of a sort of a big brother type surveillance? Well, uh, soldiers have this in, in battlefield. Uh, they have cameras on their helmets, um, and it has led to convictions. Uh, and the institution itself then pulls together. There was a recent case of a Taliban having been basically executed and it all been caught on a helmet. And that le leads then to the institution worried that it will tarnish its image and wants to respect its honor, acting with, for, I think the guy got 10 years at least, uh, jail. And so there is an argument for it, but I, I think... Because well, what, what, it, what it could mean is police officers, for example, turning up to a domestic violence incident with their cameras on their helmets, coming into a situation which is quite sensitive, which might discourage certain people from calling the police. Well, of course, they know the, they're the, going to the be cameras filmed. only capture one part of the evidence, just yeah. as they did with the shoplifter. We don't really know from the camera whether she was insulting him, you know, really sort of winding him up. Of course, that's no excuse for beating no her excuse. up. But no excuse at all. But it's, it's part of the incompleteness of the picture. I mean, I, I, but I think the main problem, you know, as cultural historian, is this uh, public tolerance of the police up against crime being allowed to take brutal action, just as we tolerate the army. If it wasn't for those cameras, for example, we wouldn't tolerate, uh, you know, we would accept that the army probably has a right to shoot the Taliban in certain circumstances, for example. And I think, you know, I, I was of the generation that moved between Dixon and Doc Green, you know, evening all, nice Bobby, to uh, Z cars, which was, which already was in the 60s, I think, and which already started this idea that police were tough, rough, sometimes a little bit bent, and that it was kind of necessary in the same way that people watch um, hospital dramas and see all the blood and, and, and realize that sometimes surgeons have off days and so on. So there, there, is, there is a kind of public acceptance that it's dirty work and somebody has to do it. And now that mood is changing. Uh, but I think it should nevertheless focus, sorry, I know, I know less on, on this whole photographic camera evidence and more on structures. That's to say, you punish senior officers so that they, they make sure that the people under their command behave properly, because there are codes of conduct of sorts. Yeah. Danny, um, do you think we've um, reached a point where public view of police is, is changing? Because actually, I, I saw an Ipsos Mori poll which said that trust in police was exactly the same now as it was a year ago and two years ago. It hasn't budged. It does make you wonder sometimes <coughs> what news events can change public opinion. But at the same not, time... Not many, Tim. That was so, yeah. one of, um, by the way, I mean, that's a sort of standing theme for mine, as you know, um, that people don't follow news, each individual news event, and it doesn't really shift them very much. Because um, these are huge events, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, yes. you look at drama on, poli on yes. television now, like Line of Duty and Silk. The, the focus on police think, corruption is a big that's true. Uh, I media think, event. I think, I think members of the public maybe have always been a little less naive about the police maybe than um, members of the Westminster part Westminster sort of elite as it were and have known what the, how the police behave like that possibly through more encounters you know so therefore what shocked Andrew Mitchell may, maybe didn't shock most other people because they encountered it, but no, I, I, I wasn't. I don't mean that so at all. Think, not for a second. Was saying that, just, no. it's just a piece yeah. of analysis. Um, so one of the things that is a problem for doctors is a full, is false positives and false.
false negatives, right? So it's, it's you're always on a tipping point between whether or not you're identifying too many people who suffer from a disease or too few and having to make a choice between whether to do those things because it's very worrying to uh, tell to give someone a false positive, tell them that they've got something they haven't got, uh, but you don't want to miss people who haven't got it. And then if you get too many people, the test becomes worthless. So this is the problem with policing. The problem with policing is you're constantly tipping in policy terms between the trust in police necessary to allow them to do their job and um, the fact that that trust often not merited uh, and <clears throat> it certainly isn't merited in quite a few cases. And the Stephen Lawrence thing was a really good example of that because um, – there was quite a strong strand of opinion that said after Stephen Lawrence's case, we made people please take ridiculous amounts of notes that meant they couldn't do their job. Um, there was too much regulation. That was a, a big strand. And the thing about it, that was true. But it's also true if you don't get them to do that, that you get problems like the Stephen Lawrence case. So you're constantly uh, adjusting. I happen to be with Jenny on this. I think that in this balance at the moment, we've probably been we've been too naive about police behaviour. I do happen to think that um, cameras can really help. Um, we also use modern technology to allow us to do these things. If we do, it will be a real constraint. By the way, if you if you uh, put out a pile of donuts on a plate and you um, and you tell people to put money in as an honour system, merely having on the wall a picture of an eye will increase the amount of money people pay for the donuts to a more honest level. In other words, being watched is uh, self policing, as it were. Fake eyes on the cameras or, or on the helmets might do, or, or perhaps just members of the public pretending they've got cameras on their on their heads. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a moment to move on and talk. And um, this, I'm afraid, will be a topic we will undoubtedly be returning to again. Roger, another ongoing topic, which we've had you on our podcast to discuss before, is the situation in Crimea. Our very good piece by Juliet Samuel in Tuesday's Times, just looking at the complete inadequacy of the sanctions that the West have managed to come up with to punish Russia. You want a much bolder offer from the West to Ukraine? Uh, yes, I, I do think sanctions have, uh, I can see the logic of it. The sanctions are a substitute for any more firmer action than, than we can possibly offer. Um, but it's based on a false premise, which is that somehow Russia cares about what Europe thinks about it, and Russia cares about what we can do about it. In fact, the only thing that will really influence Russian behavior is to stop buying its gas and oil, and we're not prepared to do that. But we do have to set limits to Europe. We, we can't let Russia intrude in the way that it's doing. We can't let it invade. It committed an act of war. We can't, we're basically seizing somebody else's territory. And we can't let that stand. And we do have an instrument for hard power. We have NATO, and it seems to me that the time has come, even though, of course, there are immense uh, complications with it, but it can still be done in, in a way that reassures the whole of the East, which is to allow Ukraine to become more integrated into the NATO structures. They could have joint brigades with Poland and Lithuania, for example. We could have uh, these uh, airborne reconnaissance planes watching Russian troop movements. We can do the we can we can push forward an umbrella of reassurance. Um, and I think we, we really, uh, having persuaded Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons uh, in return for security, I think that we are under some moral obligation to do that. Um, did, you, did you believe we're willing to make that commitment? Because you've just cited that nuclear agreement signed by John Major on behalf of our country and 
I think was it uh, Clinton and mm. um, and Yeltsin. Um, we didn't honour that agreement because we don't really want to defend Ukraine. Why? Because they're members of NATO. Would we defend them if Russia attacked the parts of eastern Ukraine that they haven't yet taken control well, the of? Mere, the why, should, why should Ukraine bitten once, believe us twice? Because there's that margin of risk, and, and that margin of risk is enough to make Putin think again. Of course, he knows that in practice we're very unlikely to, get, to want to get into a shooting war. Um, but uh, but the but because but of this this uncertain this margin of uncertainty he won't act as recklessly and as aggressively as that and i think that's a reasonable calculation and and certainly makes more sense than offering uh, accelerated entry to the european union which doesn't seem to make doesn't seem to do ukraine any good or uh, us any good okay jenny russell should we invite ukraine into nato well, not unless we're willing to go to war, and I see absolutely no sign that we want to enter into another war, let alone one with Russia. And I think the problem with the whole crisis all the way through is that, you know, I wish Ukraine were a lovely, free, independent state and that it was free to join the EU or NATO for that matter. But I think that the reality of the situation is that... Russia is a very powerful nation that already fears that it's lost far too much influence in the world. It's shown us clearly that it's not prepared to accept any more diminution of its influence. As Roger says, it doesn't give a damn what the West thinks about it. It only cares about the brute realities of power. And it's got a lot more invested in keeping Ukraine within its orbit than we have in trying to detach it. And I think all the way through, we have helped precipitate the situation by offering Ukraine a closer relationship with the EU when nobody seems to have sat and thought through the consequences or have thought, well, what will Russia think about this and how are they likely to react and how far are we prepared to go in response? And all the way through, we have, we've come out with um, moral statements and bluster and pretense and now these feeble sanctions. But the bottom line is Russia doesn't want Ukraine to get any closer to the rest of us because it makes Russia feel unsafe and powerless. And Russia is prepared to be much more brutal and savage about that than the West is. I think it's time we recognize realities. We aren't going to go to war. Don't make the situation any worse. That's right, isn't it? Danny, Jenny's account of what, well, how the, two, the two different views of Russia and the West? Yes. Uh, in all the years in opposition that the Conservatives uh, had, the only time that I felt a really faith, a really sort of brutal or killer uh, argument was used that, uh, that about a Prime Minister's uh, ability to stay in office was Michael Howard saying about Tony Blair that after the Iraq war, he couldn't be trusted to be able to make a decision about whether we went to war or not. And actually, I thought to myself, that is completely correct. But it turned out to be a bit bigger than that. Uh, I think we've lost total confidence in ourselves in the West, uh, in terms of our ability to maintain the world order and to see it progressing towards the light, as it were, to use um, uh, a slightly hackneyed phrase. I'm not sure whether we are already in a position where, it were, where we're too late in Ukraine, uh, because the moment probably to make the decision about Ukraine was when we took the vote on Syria. Uh, which was as much about our relationship with Putin as it was with uh, Assad. And Putin has correctly divined that we're not prepared to, yes. uh, to pay any price at all after the Iraq war for um, peace and uh, democracy. And that is a very sad, very bad moment for the West. OK, final word to you, Roger, before we go. In your column last week, which is in a, a critique of William Hay to a large extent, you said he should have resigned after that Syria vote. That really was a defining moment in Western foreign policy, wasn't it? That was the moment when it became clear the Western powers had moved away from intervention to non-intervention and Putin would have read 
that vote as partly an invitation to do what he did. Yes, I think so. I think Putin seizes on these moments as he sees it of weakness, as we see it of democratic accountability. But we just didn't draw any conclusions whatsoever from that. But, I mean, of course, the government immediately blamed it on, on, on Miliband, um, which was correct too. Uh, but we didn't draw any conclusions from our foreign policy and what it meant throughout the world, or indeed what it meant for parliamentary, um, the parliamentary role in the decision to to use force. We haven't thought that through. And as a result, foreign policy is weakened. And I'm afraid William Hague is too. Okay, well, we will have to end the podcast on that note. Roger, Danny, Jenny, thank you very much for joining me. And thank you to Dave Maguire, my producer, for putting this together. Thank you most of all to all of you for listening. Do go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central where you can subscribe to this weekly podcast via iTunes. Until next week, goodbye. I'm Gabriel Marconi, the host of the game podcast from The Times, where we talk football every single Monday. We'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week. Head to thetimes.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.